and we're basically going back and forth over the border, shuffling people in and out from, you know, the Ukraine onto Poland and then onto the UK. So um, it's uh, it was a very eye-opening experience. Um, saw a lot of things that, uh, you know, were a bit disturbing. Um, you know, you see sort of mm-hmm. kids that were four or five years old that had been walking for 100 kilometres because they'd been forced to leave their cities and stuff. Um, so I became pretty passionate about the cause there and... Um, you know, I follow it pretty much every day to see see how it's all going. That Canberra hospitality scene—it's like one big family. Everyone knows each other. Yeah. Everyone supports each other. Everyone's, you know, happy to go to each other's restaurants and um, just get behind each other, which is what I think that's really awesome about the Canberra hospitality scene. Doesn't matter if you're a bar or a cafe or a restaurant or a pub. Everyone gets around each other. I had a couple of contract offers before going to university, but decided to take the college scholarship. And within one year of playing there, I got drafted in the national draft. That was the eighth round pick, which was the highest an Australian's ever gone at the time. Wow. Um, and yeah, signed the contract with Minnesota and kind of bounced around with them for quite a few years. Yes, I loved it, but I also, I think, you know, heard a saying that the best way to, um, you know, destroy something you love is get paid for it. And I really kind of hold that to the DJing stuff too, the, the producing. I don't want to be forced into doing it. Sort of the, mm-hmm. the love and the enjoyment of it disappears real quickly. Um, so that's something I'm real conscious of now. Um, but yeah, sort of after a couple of years of the pressure of the grind, you play 162 games a year, so you play every There's day. So many games. Yeah. It's nonstop. Uh, one day off a month. And uh, you're basically always there. You just at the field or you're on a bus or a plane traveling somewhere. Um, it can get a bit tiring after a while. Welcome, boys. Thank you for joining us. The legends of Braddon <laughs> in the house. <laughs> Thanks for having us. Got uh, Schwaben and Brady in the house. Um, what's been going on, boys? Um, for me, not a great deal. Um, <laughs> work keeps me pretty busy, but uh, I, you know, I try and produce a, you know, a few tracks here and there to just um, you know keep adding to the to the list, and uh, that usually keeps me out of trouble. Of course. And Brady, you got some uh, some. Things in the works, some secret uh, yeah, venues. A fair bit's been going on. Uh, looking after Assembly, Corella, keeping that's keeping me busy, and then working on a couple more venues down in the Sydney building. Uh, that'll hopefully open towards the end of the year. So it's all systems go at the moment. Yeah, awesome. So that's a that's a an, a, a sort of a bigger venue. This one will be. So it's going to be to Corella. Of, yeah, it's going to be like about three three venues in one. Be a bit of a takeaway sandwich deli, um, a bit of a dive bar in the basement where the old pancake parlor was. Oh yeah. And then above that, on the ground floor, will be another restaurant. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. So that is a massive undertaking, yeah, uh, especially yeah. especially in the current market. Yeah. yeah. Yep. But also good to revive. I didn't realise it was in that sort of Melbourne, or is it the Sydney on the side? Yeah, the, Sydney, the Melbourne. Yeah. So good to kind of revive that space, which it's a bit has been a bit derelict. You know, yeah, derelict yeah. for a while. And what's what's it gonna gonna look like? I guess well, the restaurant's going to be a bit more of a slightly retro feel in there. Um, the dive bar will be a bit dingy, grungy. Um, uh, and the, uh, the deli's going for a bit more of a retro feel as well. So not trying to do anything that's going to look out of place in that old historic building, but something that'll fit, I think, quite nicely in that area of the interchange. Yeah, awesome. And it, it, it yeah. And they've been working quite hard there to try and keep the, the aesthetic the same and all the well, they, heritage yeah, listing and things. They hadn't done anything for a while, but they've the government's finally just got funding to rejuvenate that, that building, so get rid of the homeless all around there mm. and just a bit of the upkeep on uh, some of the painting on the facade of the building, just tidy it all up. Because it is a beautiful old building. Yeah. It's, yeah. Oh, it's, it's an awesome. iconic it's spot awesome. yeah. like in Canberra. Yeah. yeah, it's awesome. So so in the next, you know, 12 to 18 months, up, that, that area foots more in the interchange on that building will start to look a bit neater. Unreal. And is that kind of what uh, keeps you going? Is the the constant sort of building the next thing and and experimenting with that? Is that yes, h- how no. you got into it? Or I actually got into hospitality 
you know, I was a carpenter for 10 years um, before, before, and I was just doing some um, picking up glasses on the side at the old Suburban in Dixon. I'm not sure if you remember that. Yeah. Um, and I was just getting pretty sick of waking up at 6 a.m. and picking up tools in minus six degree. So you've been on the tools down there working away? Not down there, no. Did a bit, <laughs> I did a bit, uh, quite a bit um, for assembly to get that one open, but um, no, I'm fully off the tools now. Good move. <laughs> and uh, still doing gigs, mate? Still out and about? Um, I don't really do many gigs or really any at the moment. Um, I had sort of a family thing come up. That's why I came back from overseas. And since then, I've just basically been doing, mostly focusing on the production and uh, spending some time with my family and uh, the, the new job that I've got with the Department of Defence, which keeps me real busy. So um, I also do the bouncing and that a fair bit for uh, the LSG guys, with uh, Jackie Ryan and that. And um, the sad fact is you can make a lot more money bouncing than what you can DJing in Canberra. So <laughs> it's Really? Yeah. 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 yeah, I've never really thought about that. So mm. is, is there, there wouldn't be many... Uh, um, DJ slash security guards in, in no, Canberra, would they? No, there's, they don't really kind of fit that criteria very often. It's a bit bit different. Um, at least I can, you know, if someone doesn't like my song, I can just bash them. Instead of <laughs> it. Most of DJs these days aren't your size anyway. No, that's right. No. And uh, tell us a bit about the uh, the travels before you return back to Canberra. Is, is Canberra your home, would you say? It is now. Yeah, I'm yeah. from Melbourne originally. Yeah. Um, I've spent a lot of time overseas, uh, first off as a professional baseball player. Uh, I was drafted out of university over there and uh, spent about 10 years with the Minnesota Twins and the Colorado Rockies. I uh, went and played in Japan and Korea for a bit, um, also over to Germany, played there for a couple of years. And it was in Germany that I probably started to get into the music side of things and came back to Australia and got pretty heavily into had my own promotion company down in Melbourne. Um, used to run a few events and stuff at the clubs out there. Um, but then, you know, life came up, got married, had to get a real job and I kind of put it away for a bit and then got back into it during the lockdown just to give me something to do. Um, stop me sort of waking up at 10 o'clock and <laughs> opening the vodka. <laughs> um, so it was, it was a good, uh, avenue for me to, and, uh, you know, a lot of people kind of experience things like that during the COVID that to try and find something to do. And the, uh, the, the production was, was it for me. Um, that coincided with a job opportunity over in the UAE. So I went across there. And um, you sort of use that as a springboard to just go to places that I wanted to go to and then uh, perform at venues in cities and, and countries that I wanted to see. Unreal. Yeah, it's, it's, it's cool when, uh, when those sort of passions can take you around the world and really is an excuse almost to see the world. Yeah, well, I, I found it really useful to sort of connect with people in those towns too. Um, I remember I went to Tbilisi, Georgia, which is sort of right up on the Russian border and went to a place called Kaspegi, which is up in the mountains. And, uh, you know, people that, you know, you'd never come across and that kind of opens up some doors to, you know, make some friendships and have some pretty wild experiences at the same time. What were some of those wild experiences? <laughs> um, well, I went to Nepal. I DJed there in Kathmandu. Um, and I don't think anyone spoke any English. Um, Perfect. They smoke a lot of weed. Yeah, they love it over there, don't they? They're just sleepy. It's their national pastime. Um, so that was that was very interesting. Uh, Georgia was probably my most interesting of the bunch. Um, just, you know, an old Soviet country. Um, and a lot of that kind of still remains there. Um, very religious country, which was kind of, um, you know, interesting to go to. Almost the, I think they call it the second most religious country in the world. Um, right. But they do do enjoy having a good time, and uh, the food and the drink there was just amazing. I loved it. Yeah, awesome. And you also don't, I guess, get many people of, with that athletic background too, and your size coming through Nepal mountains. No, <laughs> I stood out pretty yeah, bit, I stood out a bit. Stand there. out a bit there. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but um, no, and also you know being kind of a big guy in places like that, you're a bit of a novelty. People sort of want to talk to you as well, and. Um, you know, you can invite into places. I remember when I was in um, Armenia and uh, I had a taxi driver take me somewhere and he starts talking and then he's, uh, he said, oh, you, where are you from? I told him Australia and he said, I met him from Australia. And next thing I know, he drives me back to his parents' house and we're having like a barbecue in the backyard with this taxi driver I've never had anything to do with and his <laughs> parents and just uh, hanging out for like the whole day there. It was great. Yeah, unreal. Um, 
and you you glossed over a lot of things there in your in your little intro. Tell us, tell us, take us back to um, the the time when you were coming out of um, coming out of college and and playing baseball there. What what were you what were you thinking you were going to do? What did you do at that sort of point? Yeah, I kind of decided at a pretty young age that I was going to be a professional baseball player. Um, I showed some pretty good signs athletically at around 14 and 15 and started getting interest from professional scouts. Uh, and this was in Australia That was in Australia, still? yeah. So what I played, year was this? Huh? What year was this when all this was starting? 94, 95, <laughs> so that was a while ago. Um, Get the age in there. Yeah. <laughs> I still look younger than you, though. No. <laughs> And, uh, yeah, so I really got into it. Uh, it was a family thing too. My dad uh, played for Australia, had cousins that played, and um, I got sort of seen on the world stage. Um, I had a couple of contract offers before going to university but decided to take the college scholarship. And within one year of playing there, I got drafted in the national draft. That was the eighth-round pick, which was the highest an Australian's ever gone at the time. Wow. Um, and, yeah, signed the contract with Minnesota and kind of bounced around with them for quite a few years. Ended up having a little bit of a fallout with them um, and then re-signed with another team and spent a couple of years with them before heading over to the uh, sort of international markets. Yeah, awesome. And you, and you enjoyed that time in the professional sports world? Yeah, I, well, yes, I loved it. But I also, I think, you know, heard a saying that the best way to, um, you know, destroy something you love is get paid for it. And I really kind of hold that to the DJing stuff too, the, the producing. I don't want to be forced into doing it. Sort of the, mm -hmm. the love and the enjoyment of it disappears real quickly. Um, so that's something I'm real conscious of now. Um, but, yeah, sort of after a couple of years of the pressure of the grind, you play 162 games a year, so you play every There's day. so many games. Yeah. It's nonstop, uh, one day off a month. And uh, you're basically always there. You're just at the field or you're on a bus or a plane traveling somewhere. Um, it can get a... Bit tiring after a while, and you know and how does training fit into all of that with traveling and all the games? Set like well, uh, games would start at seven thirty at night. Yep, um, we would get to the field around midday. We do training and pregame stuff then. So you're training and playing yeah. on the same day, some yeah. days. Yeah, it's all uh, all in there. Plus a gym session before that. Oh, it's so it's just uh, it's pretty much nonstop. And uh, I wonder why their contracts are so big these days. Yeah, and they keep a pretty good lid on you too. Like you know. They don't like you going out, and yeah, right. that was probably one of the things that got me in a bit of trouble <laughs> early on. You know, I went across as I saw I was nineteen, I think, by the time they got me, and I considered myself a man because you know here in Australia you can drink and do whatever yeah. you want. All of a sudden I'm over there, and they're saying you can't drink. You know, twenty one, and yeah. um, so I try to put curfews on me. I was like, oh, that's a fucking curfew since I was thirteen. You know, I've <laughs> just, just I've just turned the legal age of yeah, drinking. Yeah. yeah, it's a uh, it's a different world, but. Um, it's something that I didn't adapt to too well early on, um, but I got a bit mature and uh, when I was with Colorado, um, they were much more lenient, sort of allowed a bit of my flair and lifestyle to, to be into it, which, which I quite enjoyed. Going to bars and stealing plates. <laughs> stealing a lot more things than just that. <laughs> and, and what was the reaction? As a, were you a hitter? Yeah, I was a hitter at start. We decided something a little bit different. Um, I was a very hard thrower, um, so I, I signed with the Twins as a catcher or a hitter. Um, but then Colorado didn't have any spots on their roster for a catcher and they said, we want to sign you. Um, have you ever thought of pitching before? And I said, I've never done it my whole life. And uh, they got the radar going out and they said, just throw a couple of balls off the mound and see what you got. And uh, I was one of the hardest throwers that they had at the time. So they just offered me a contract as a pitcher then I pitched with them for two years. So I was one of the few guys that actually did both. Have you got any uh, highlights on YouTube we can pull up? There's, there would be some YouTube stuff there. Um, I think one of my old baseball clubs in Melbourne put up some stuff. Uh, it's just John Edwards, but you might get the president, the guy that tried to be president. You also might get that, uh, what's his name, the, the psychic bloke, John Edward. So there's a few things that pop up. What about the uh, incident? Uh, was it down at uh, Narrabunda here when you run through that bloke? Oh, yeah. Um, well, they sort of brought in a new rule after that where you weren't allowed to run through them anymore. But uh, that was I used to enjoy that both as the, the giver and the receiver, I guess, because I was a catcher. So I'd often have people, you know, trying to run into me and I kind of took it as a, you know, a real personal thing to make sure I held on to the ball and got the out. And the opposite when I was running, you know, I really enjoyed that part of it. Yeah, I can't really tell if this is your stuff, but it seems to be another... John Edwards here too. A lot of my career happened before the internet age. So, um, Valhalla? Yeah, that was a gym that, that I owned down in Melbourne. Oh, yeah? Um, 
helped me lose quite a bit of money. So <laughs> thanks for bringing that one up. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you got to try everything. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, um, I had three gyms down in Melbourne. Um, the first one was a sports specific one that I used to run with some uh, Victorian cricketers and a few AFL guys and we'd sort of train kids um, sports specific um, then I opened another gym with a mate that was an ex-SAS officer and we had SAS fitness going there for a while um, it just got to the stage where I was sort of working 70 hours a week and barely paying bills and that was enough for me it's too much you're a mug if you own your own business it's not good yeah that's amazing what did what was the um, the reaction to a to an Aussie over there coming in out of out of college as a hitter and then picking up a ball for the first time in a in in the leagues you know was it the major leagues at that well I was in the reserve grades reserve grades yeah, so yeah. you belong to a major league team but yeah. with their, um, sort of they got five levels of minor leagues underneath them yeah so it's a sort of a long journey up yeah um, but yeah it was with all the reserve grades and when I first signed I was a bit of a unique situation being an Australian. There'd probably only been, you know, a dozen or so that had done it by that stage. Um, now there's probably been a hundred kids that have gone through the professional system. So they are a bit more prevalent now than what they were back then. But um, yeah, especially down in the Southern States, uh, people from New York, Chicago, LA, they kind of get exposed to people from different cultures and countries. But um, you go to Birmingham, Alabama, yeah. and they've never heard anyone with an Australian <laughs> accent before. And then, uh Germany, you were playing in Germany. Is yeah. that what took you to Germany? Yeah, that yeah. was the, the first time that I went there. Um, I sort of decided I didn't want to go back to the grind of the American style of, um, you know, 160 games and got offered a pretty good contract by a team over there. Um, I had a really good season, but the team finished dead last and they were fucking hopeless. <laughs> and uh, I can remember one day, um, I used to get so frustrated with them and uh, we had a situation in the game where the coach had told one of the players to do something and he didn't do it. And after the game, I kind of we're all had a little you know, huddle and we're talking about the game and uh, the coach has said his thing and I just said, I can't fucking believe this. I go, if a coach tells you to do something, you've got to do it. There's no, there's no thinking, you just do what you're told to do. I said, it's not a democracy, it's a dictatorship and you fucking Germans should know what a dictatorship is. <laughs> and that went down like a lead balloon. I had to make an apology <laughs> to the team and all this kind of stuff. Um, and that was around the time you you were like, I might give this music thing a go. Yeah, just uh, I enjoyed myself pretty good over there. I didn't. Um, you Where you're based over there? Stuttgart, so yep. the southwest, big city, you know, sort of a bit bigger than Canberra, I guess. Um, and you know, really good party scene and that. And I just went out one night and stumbled into some club and kind of got involved in in that kind of music and really liked it and uh, everything else that went along with it. And I had a really good time over there. Yeah, I'm real. And now you're back in the, and then that, well, that was a fair few years over there, kind of honing the craft in the tech sort of genre. Yeah, I never really know. thought about um, being a DJ. I was just interested in it. Um, and I became mates with a couple of guys over there and they kind of showed me, you know, how to do it. And this was back when we had to use you know, vinyl. There was no consoles and stuff that they have now. So I kind of learnt you know, the old way of doing it and um, a little bit in production with sort of the first version of Ableton. They showed me a few things like that and that's obviously improved dramatically over the last, uh, you know, 15 to 20 years. Um, but that was kind of, it was just a hobby, you know, and I found some guys that were cool to hang out with and drink beers and um, kind of just got the, the enjoyment of it from them. Yeah, unreal. And how did you guys link up back in Canberra? Uh, he was on the other side of the road and I threw a strawberry across from assembly <laughs> and hit him in the head. <laughs> Uh, no, I was uh, I was doing was some stuff fun. with Jack doing the bouncing and uh, Jack and Scalzi uh, thick as thieves and just kind of wigging my way in there. Yeah, yeah, and the rest is history. Yeah, the rest <laughs> is history. Now doing a bloody podcast yeah. down there. Yeah, who would have thunk it? Yeah, and uh, I guess co coming from the hospitality sort of world, what's uh, and and you helped launch Assembly, yep. is that right? So yeah. that was. Um, how long ago was that? that? Oh, that was four years ago now. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So that was sort of a big, a big thing for Braddon because it was the first after Hopscotch to open yep. a real big size venue. Yeah. Um, and 
the challenge of having those two venues quite close, I imagine, would have been one of the thoughts. It, what, it was wasn't so much going up against each other as just bringing more people into into Braddon, I guess. Making it more of a yeah. destination. I mean, Braddon Braddon started to become a pretty cool oh, 10, 12 years ago now. Italian Sons was one of the first restaurants and then you got 86 and then it slowly built from there. Hopscotch came in and, you know, next thing you know, all the car yards and the mechanics are gone. And, um, yeah, I guess we were the, the next one in line and just fortunate enough to have that big space where you could have... 300 people inside and 200 people in the in the beer garden out the back and camp, the campers yeah. just loved Flocked it. it. Yeah. And they still do. And they still do. It's been like it was a funny time to open, um, you know, a hospitality business. I'm not sure if you remember. Like we opened mid-2019 and then in the summer that's when all the bushfires started and Canberra was just riddled with all that smoke. And then we got out of that and then straight into COVID. So it's only, it's only like this start of this year that we've really had a good proper run at it. Yeah. You can right. really like, you know, look at your numbers and compare it to the last year. I yeah. Guess. Yeah. You were but pretty much a bottle shot for a while there. You were a bottle yeah. shot for, that was a funny time, wasn't it? It's so just, weird to think about now. Yeah. Eh? It's like. Yeah. It feels like it was so long ago when we started that bottle shop. We were just like thinking so so hard about what was going to happen if COVID did reach Canberra. And then it, next thing you know, like that, we were in lockdown and we were just like, fuck. And but, was that sort of the first, so you, you said you were working at Suburban, was that your first switch over into hospitality? So yeah, or? assembly was my first, like, first full-time job in hospitality. So... Yeah, so quite a welcome. It's quite a welcome, yeah. And, yeah, going from being the busiest place in town, doing 10 a.m. to 2 a.m. shifts six days a week into the bottle shop, (laughs) to be honest, the first couple of weeks was actually like a little holiday. I was just living on Lonsdale Street anyway. So it was just... Everyone thought, oh, uh, it'll only be, yeah. it'll be a month or so and we'll yeah. be back, yeah. Had you always had a passion for food? Oh, yeah, I've always loved, when I was, especially when I was, um, you know, growing up as a carpenter, I loved going out to restaurants and trying all the new food, but also drinking wine and educating myself on wine and, you know, each, each, every family function that we had, you know, my dad and my uncles were just get so excited because we would, you know, take a new bottle of wine and, you know, they would, they would do the same thing and we're just, you know, tasting each other's wines and it was, that's, that's, that's how I got really into wine. But obviously food and wine just go hand to hand together so well. Was that a big family Lebanese function? <laughs> uh, Arabic. <laughs> Arabic, Arabic. Sorry. Yeah. And uh, you're very hands on with the stuff at Corella and... Uh, yeah, so then, so in that first lockdown, uh, we got approached by uh, the guy that owns the space that Corella's in now um, to see if he wanted to take that lease over. So that was just sort of by chance, Corella. It was a bit more of a passion project, a bit more refined and, um, you know, more intimate and, you know, um, yes, something we actually enjoyed putting our time into. Um, and then that, you know, opening that, we were straight away into the gourmet traveler magazines and, and all that. So, you know, it was just nonstop from opening assembly and then straight into Corella. Um, it's, it's been, it's been, it's been unreal actually. Yeah. How important, uh, things like being a good traveler and, um, say even people leaving reviews on Google and that's it's huge. That's huge. Impact. Yeah, yeah. Especially the Gourmet Traveller because it's a national uh, magazine. So you know you get people from Sydney reading that, and they're coming down for Canberra oh, for the weekend. Right. You know, that's oh I've seen you in Gourmet Traveller. We had to come. You know, it's 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 it's, it's big it's big publicity, which yeah. is it's awesome. And it seems like Canberra is always punching 
well above its weight in the hospitality world. Do you think that's recent? Yeah, like, as of late, Canberra's hospitality scene is it's doing really well. I think. Well, there's just there's a lot more venues opening, and it's just holding everyone else accountable. You can you, you've got to be one step ahead of what everyone else is doing. You've got to have your finger on the pulse. You've got to just you can't get complacent, I guess. So it's just becoming more and more competitive, but there's still a big, there's still a big, like the Canberra hospitality scene, it's like one big family. Everyone knows each other. Yeah. Everyone supports each other. Everyone's, you know, happy to go to each other's restaurants and um, just get behind each other, which is what I think that's really awesome about the Canberra hospitality scene. doesn't matter if you're a bar or a cafe or a restaurant or a pub. Everyone gets around each other. And I'd, I'd noticed that and was actually surprised at how well the different groups work together and yep. communicate. I was sort of think it's a bit of a dog-eat-dog dog world. There'll yep. be a bit of professional rivalry or something. Yeah. Like but it does seem like they legitimately do try and help each no, other everyone, out. Everyone cares about every other, every, everyone's business, I guess. Mm. You know, if you're not – if you're in it for all the right reasons, then everyone will get around you. And what do you think that is like? I've never really worked much in hospitality, but I'd imagine in other cities it might not be quite like that. It, do you think there is something about Canberra that sort of made that happen? Yes, I think. I mean, I've never worked hospitality anywhere else in Australia, so I can't. It feels like in Sydney it's a bit more cutthroat and everyone holds their cards a bit close to their chest. But I think like Canberra as a whole, um, and, and, and we saw that in, in the lockdown, Canberra really coming together as a community and supporting local businesses with all the takeaway and, um, but Canberra's, all Canberrans are very proud about everything from Canberra, whether it be, you know, the wineries, Capital Brewing, the little restaurants that are getting, you know, noticed around the, around the country. It's, they're very proud and they, they don't, they don't take it for granted. So I think like Canberra as a whole, just it's this one big happy family community. Yeah, I definitely reckon that's it. Eh? And the 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 punters too in Canberra just seem to love going out to new things, yeah. trying new stuff. Yeah. And they'll whenever something new opens, it's like everyone just everyone goes, goes to it. Yeah. And that's the thing at the moment. There's so many venues opening. At the moment, there's there's a there's, there's a lot going on, which is which is good for the town, which is yeah, it's really good for the town. All the people are a bit more spread now. There's not the dominant venues that you know ten years ago. There was you know three venues that you go to. It's a, there's a lot more spread now. There's a lot more variety. And um, is there going to be music involved in your new um, venue? In the dive bar, the, in it's the gonna dive be, bar, it's going to yeah. be a bit more of a live music venue. Yeah, yeah. awesome. Yeah. So and. I guess with Assembly too, um, well known for some epic uh, Sunday Arvos in yeah, there, yeah, and a bit, got a little bit in trouble for those. Ones. Yeah, but it's kind of <laughs> quite a great piece of that now. Yeah, so is that what it was? The those uh, that that caused that um, the famous one night shut. Uh, yeah, yeah. So that's it's that's uh, it was just a lot of noise complaints. Um, you know, we were just having too much fun with it and. You know, we were taking the piss there a little bit, but, you know, having the two apartment blocks right on the back of assembly doesn't doesn't really help in our case. I mean, you see this happen in every big city. It happens in Melbourne, down around Collingwood and Fitzroy. Yep. It's happened in Sydney and these areas become popular. You yep. know, 15 years ago, though, it was a car yard. Yep. No one wanted to live here. Now it gets popular because of places like assembly and hopscotch and yep. Corrala and everything else there. But the people move in there for that, and then once they get there, it's like we only want you to make noise on the nights we're going out. You know, yeah. don't don't interrupt me. You're all moving to that place because of what's there, yeah. and then complaining about what's there. Yeah, it's, and they're, it's the very frustrating. Want, they're the ones that wanted things there before. You know, when it was quiet anyway. Yeah, if you don't want the noise, you know, move out to Woden or something. Yes, yeah. you know, it's just. Yeah. Very I mean, I mean, we were being a bit loud, you know, to a point, but anyway, it's all done now. We had our yeah. fun. You might not be able to answer this because you've got to be careful, but how difficult is Access Canberra and the Canberra government to deal with? To me, from the outside, it doesn't have to do anything with them. It seems like very rigid, 
very much got to have every document for every single thing. And they, I've you seen just need come. to be well organised, and you just need to play ball with them. Mm. Yeah. I mean, I've seen them come in when I've been bouncing at places, and they, I guess they got to try and justify the job, but they look for. Oh, any they've all got. Thing. Everyone's got a job to do, right? Yeah. And there are rules in place for um, certain reasons, and and the right reasons. Um, but if you work with the government, the, the government's going to work with you. It's just it's two way street, so you can't you can't go talking to them with your back up, and otherwise you're just going to get nowhere. What do you think the closing hours should be of places in Canberra? Keep in mind we're a world capital, so if you go to you know Washington or Tokyo or Berlin or London, yeah, yeah, granted yeah. they are bigger cities, yeah, but you can go and get a meal any time of the day. You can go and get a drink any time of night. Yeah, I mean I had a delegation of some people from the Netherlands here just recently. And about ten thirty, they want to get something to eat. So you got a choice between Macca's or yeah. a, a pie from the service station. And it's not it's not so much that our hours are, you know, we're supposed to shut at this time. It's at, it's just Canberrans, they love going to bed early. You reckon that's what it yeah, is? Yeah, yeah, they love going to bed early. Um, like Corella's licence is till midnight, so we can stay open till, till midnight if we wanted serving food. But... You know, if we stay open past nine o'clock on a week weeknight, or even even you even struggle to have people in there eating right up until midnight on a mm. on a Friday Sunday. So, it's I think it's just you know we're a small sleepy town. We're not a big city yet. Um, it's, it's on the way. The more people that that move into the into the city, and there's going to be more demand for that. But I just there's no demand for it at the moment. Yeah, you might get you know a few people that want to eat late, but that's doesn't warrant it paying doesn't, the wages. It doesn't pay the wages yeah. and it doesn't warrant keeping keeping um the shops open mm. that late. Yeah, we're we're barely a seven night town even. Like, yeah. you know, Mondays, Tuesdays it's deserted yeah, in the like, city and I mean Corella, for example, like thirty seats, you know, we're always quite full between six and eight thirty on a weeknight. And anything after eight thirty it's it's not much happening. Mm. And how, how have you enjoyed the the Corella project? Like you you you've very much taken that. The wine is yep. also one of your specialties there. Um, it's de- very different to what Assembly does, it's, and so it's kind of we are able to build it a bit more. You just tailor it. Yeah, you just tailor it a bit more. Um, so Assembly's so it's so hectic, and and it is fun. It is fun working there. Everyone's coming through the doors and, and you know, like in Canberra, you, you know every second person in Canberra. So it's a bit more matesy and hectic, but Corella, you can actually get a bit more excited about working there because it's, well, for me personally anyway, because it's it's something that within the within the um, industry that I'm in, it's, it's those subjects that I actually like talking about. You know, I can get excited talking to people about this wine or why we've done this with this dish. and So, yeah, it's a bit more easy to get excited about working there. Yeah, awesome. And what do you think um, is is the, fu- is the future bright for Braddon and what do you think is next in Braddon? Obviously, you've got the stuff going over the the road now yep. into the city again. Yep. But um, what do you think Braddon's uh, I fu- think Braddon will stay as, as long as – it's a bit hard to say at the moment because, I mean, the cost of living and everything is playing a massive part with, you know, just how regular people are going out and or what they're spending their money on. But hopefully that sort of comes back around full circle soon. And But I think Braddon's always going to be a little a, a little hub of Canberra. Um, as, long as, as long as we've got some good operators on the street um, and – you just keeping it edgy and keeping it up with the times. I think Braddon will always be, always be humming along. But who knows? Like, there's got to be a new little hub in Canberra that pops up soon in the next five years. So it's going to be interesting to see where that is. Whether it's Old Kingston again or it didn't. Monica used to be the spot a while ago. I think that was even a little bit before my time. Was it? Yeah, there was a couple of nightclubs out there uh, I never went to, and a couple of little restaurants, but. Few people talking about Philip too, like Yeah, it, so there's a lot happening out there, yeah. Philip and Woden area with all those that's almost the central of Canberra now, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. 
Um, so they got Fenway and then there's that other pub. What was that one? Uh, the Albi. Albi. Albi, yeah. 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 So there's a little bit happening out there, but. Canberra's always going to be like that kind of these. Like The thing is with Braddon is you've got a lot of those trendier sort of people around, like people with a little bit of money in their pocket that live around here, um, people that are happy to, you know, they might just live in apartments so they're happy to go out and eat, you know, most of the nights, um, whether it be just getting a little dumpling feed or spruce and um, – you know, spending all your money at Corella or, or 86 or Italian and Sons, places like those. I think that's a real advantage for Braddon is, is I guess, the people that are living around here a bit more trendy. I, 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 the I disposable think. income? Yeah, 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 more disposable income. The like, kind of people that disappear a couple of times a week to play golf or <laughs> Harry and Matt do all the work there at hey. Corella. Hey. What happens when you what, get to the top? You'd be the boss, that's right. <laughs> that's what you want. Build your own life. <laughs> and uh, what do you reckon? You, you were mentioning earlier that uh, the um, that you were it was more profit. You were making more money bouncing than DJing. What do you reckon needs to be changed in Canberra for that? Because uh, we've we've had a bit of a we've had huge success with all these restaurants uh, in Canberra, but the clubs. And night spots maybe have lacked a little bit, and it surprises me to hear that that's the case. Or not that um, they shouldn't earn that much money, but I mean that, that someone who could cho- choose can choose to d- be a bouncer. Yeah, basically, yeah. the clubs are still paying DJs they say the same as they were twenty five years ago. You know that fifty to one hundred dollar an hour type thing. You know, just for your your basic type. You know, locals will come in and, and keep the dance floor going. Um, but I guess they're, restri- they're restricted by the finances of it all. Um, you know, if a place is bringing in 300 people, well, then they can afford to spend a bit more money and give the DJs and the entertainers a bit more. But when, you know, like at the moment, people's all their rents are going up, their, their um, mortgages are going up, that disposable income you're just kind of talking about, it's not there. So it filters down and... You know, they use less bar staff, they use less glasses, less entertainment. You know, instead of booking entertainment, they might just, you know, play Spotify through the speakers. Um, it's all just about, I guess, supply and demand at the moment. Yeah. There's a lot of people that want to be DJs, especially now because it's so easy to be one. I mean, with the consoles and the mixers now, you can pretty much teach anyone to DJ in the space of 20 to 30 minutes. You know, the auto, you know, syncs for you. It can tell you the key of every track. Um you can put it on loop to slowly transition out. It's it's not the skill that it sort of used to be. So there's a lot of people that want to do it, and um, you know they like being up the front of the on the stage and jumping up and down. And um, there's plenty of people that want to do that. So when that's the case, you got more supply than what you have demand, and that's why we're still getting paid the same as what they were, you know, 25 years ago. Mm. Yeah. Bush could probably have a longer shift band of bouncer than a DJ. Yeah, it's just to start at start eight. Well, the other thing that's good about bouncer too is the other sort of perks. And like an assembly, I, you get to have dinner there first. So <laughs> I'll go there. And I think we're only supposed to get like the, the palmers or something, but I'll make sure I get the ribeye every time I go yeah, in there. You bully the, you bully the poor staff, don't you? Yeah, no, well, I'll look after them. You were the one getting kicked out the other week. Kicked out of your own place. Hey, we'll talk about that another time. <laughs> um. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, and I guess the other thing to with that as well is uh, security's in short demand at the moment in town. Um, I run security at the Defence Department and we, we're just giving away jobs at the moment, anyone that's got a security licence and, you know, the, the groups that own the, the sort of the club scene of the bouncers, they're, they're in such need of, of guards that they've done the opposite of the DJs. The wages have gone up. You know, there's people earning 50 60 70 $80 an hour, you know, just standing at the door. Yeah, not doing, doing nothing. much. Yeah, not yeah. doing much. Make, having a bit of a laugh and you know, a couple of drinks on the side and free feed from assembly. It's not, not a bad well, gig. It's not so much as LSG. It's a few of the other security companies in town that just got shirt fillers, I guess. Yeah, there's a few like that. Um, and that's, that's just the nature of the business at the moment. There's not yeah. enough good guys around yeah. to do it. And is is it something you want to get back into doing live sets, or you 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 said earlier more focus on the production now? Yeah, not not really. Um, I don't sort of like how the DJing's gone. Where now it's like you kind of stand up there like a priest on a pulpit, you know, and everyone's sort of looking at you, and 
you know, the guys are fist pumping and uh, I saw one the other day, they were doing a shoey in the middle of their set and stuff like that. And you can do that now because you don't have to spend as much time queuing up the records and getting everything exactly right like you used to have to do. You can basically set a track up and have the next one ready to go in another five minutes and you can be there partying and jumping around and that's just not my style. I much prefer sort of the older places where you weren't the centre of attention. You know, the music was what people came for. They didn't need to see you, you know, jumping around and carrying on and uh, that's just not my style and I'm not sort of interested in doing that. Yeah, and... Yeah, maybe that's partly the, the the venues changing too, from being more those nightclub venues to more like it's while you're having your cocktails and stuff mm. now. Yeah, yeah. There's a there's a lot of people that like you know the, the sort of the showmanship, but I don't really have that in me as far as I think you have to have a little bit of a wanker in you to be a DJ, and I've got a little bit, but not quite enough I think to do that. So Scalzi might disagree, but um, yeah, I mean, I, I much prefer the, the production side of things now. Um, I get a real kick when I get a DM from someone on the other side of the world that says, I love this track, I played it out, they send me a video of it. You know, I had a guy from Pakistan send me a video of him using one of my tracks. I never thought Pakistan of all places would be playing the music. Yeah. And, you know, I had Solomon, who's one of the sort of world's big DJs, play one of my tracks at a at a festival over there uh, in Croatia. Um, I had another one get sent a video from Pasha in Ibiza with one of my tracks being used, and um, it's just kind of cool when you can make something in your, you know, in your cupboard in basically what I've got in Braddon, and then the next thing you know, it's sort of playing somewhere Other else in the world. Trying it yeah, yeah. across the world, yeah. yeah. That's what I get the sort of satisfaction yeah. from. Yeah, yeah, it is pretty crazy the the internet, what the internet has done to to music now. Mm. And you got to be a part of it. I was talking to someone the other day, and she was kind of getting a bit annoyed about how you have to spend so much time on the social media side of things and promoting it. Yeah. And that's really what you got to do. And different countries have different platforms. So, you know, Facebook's pretty much dead here as far as promoting music. I mean, for whatever reason, people don't kind of engage with Facebook. They engage more with the Instagram. And then overseas, you know, the US, they're much more into their Twitter and stuff. Um, then you go back over to the Middle East and they're all just Facebook. Um, all Facebook through, you know, Eastern Europe and stuff. So you've got to just cover up all your platforms, your Instagram, your Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, a web page. It gets exhausting after yeah. a while. Yeah. TikTok. I tried Tick. TikTok for a while, but I couldn't do it. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't do it. I can't. I'm not, I don't even have the app. I've had, that's probably where I've had the most plays from. Um, the, my agent that puts together and releases all my tracks uh, sent me a message and he said, you've got almost 800,000 videos made of your tracks on TikTok. And I said, what do you mean? I said, well, they make little videos and then yeah. they add your song to it. And they went and looked at it and there was like eight, 832,000 videos have been made. And I said, well, that's got to be worth something for me. How much is that? And he said, £2.45. <laughs> so 800,000 plays. It wasn't even enough to buy a cup of coffee. That's uh, it's just the way it is. Yeah, the, the internet puts it out there, but it doesn't really... Uh pay the artists back for it. No, and I think, you know, it's in a way it's good. Pretty much anyone can reach a worldwide audience now if they've got a little bit of talent and, you know, they, they get lucky, they put something together that's, you know, gets viral. Um, but on the flip side of it, you know, no one's um, selling CDs for $30 anymore yeah. like they used to be and that was where the, the money was. Yeah. So what's your biggest platform at the moment? Where, like, what are your, your streaming happening? Happens. I try and focus most of it on Beatport because that's oh, yeah. where I get paid the most from. Yep. So you get $1.69 US from every song that goes on there. Um, I also use Spotify and that. And again, that's similar to TikTok. It's, it's bugger all. You know, I've probably yep. had a couple of million plays on there. Um, but I doubt I've made more than £100 off, off um, uh, Spotify. But uh, definitely the Beatport because that's where you upload your best quality tracks and that's where the DJs download them from. So they're not sort of... Just listeners, these are people that are going to download your song and, and use it in their sets. Yeah, yep. Um, and, yeah, you were talking earlier, so the security stuff, and you you were saying you've actually gone recently over to the Ukraine. Yeah, so when well, it was a while ago now, it was last year, um, but the company I signed a contract for over there uh, were the providers for security on the Almanard Air Force Base and this kind of coincided to when the war started and they also got the contract to get about 20,000 refugees out of the Ukraine into Poland then onto um, the UK uh, for settlement there during for the duration of the war. So we had the contract for that so we went into Poland, um, put all the logistics together 
and we're basically going back and forth over the border, shuffling people in and out from, you know, the Ukraine onto Poland and then onto the UK. So um, it's uh, it was a very eye-opening experience. Um, saw a lot of things that, uh, you know, were a bit disturbing. Um, you know, you see sort of mm-hmm. kids that were four or five years old that had been walking for 100 kilometres because they'd been forced to leave their cities and stuff. Um, so I became pretty passionate about the cause there and... Um, you know, I follow it pretty much every day to see see how it's all going. Um, but uh, yeah, it was a very interesting experience. And yeah, what what was that time like? You got the so you got the contract before the war started, and then next minute you find yourself over there in the midst of a war. Is that right? Yeah. So yeah. I went across in January um, to work on the air force base. There was no war then, and then it broke out sort of late February. Um, and then the UK made their promise of, I think they wanted to bring in 100,000 refugees and Serco were a British-based company and they gave them the contract because they had also, just before I got there, they got all the um, Afghans out of Kabul before um, that all sort of fell apart. Um, and, yeah, like I said, they had a good job with that, so they're happy to use them again for getting them out of uh, Ukraine. And so at, that's at a time when everyone's trying to get as far away from the Ukraine as they possibly can. And we, you were in there at the time and, mm. and we, what were your thoughts back then? Like, do I leave? Do I, do I, we need to stay and finish this job or? Um, I quite liked it because I, I enjoy being in an interesting situation. And that for me was the most interesting going thing going on in the world at the time. Um, so I never felt scared at all over there. Um, we were a fair way away from where things were actually going on. Um, but uh, it was very re- rewarding, you know, sort of getting people out. Um, you know, there was some difficult situations where they weren't allowing anyone of sort of sick, like healthy men or women from 16 over to, I think it was 40 or something, um, unless they had children to leave leave the city or leave the country. They were sort of conscripted straight into to the military. So you had a lot of families kind of breaking up, you know, at the border going into Poland and then, you know, the, the wife and the kids got, going across to safety but the old man having to head back to Kiev and suit up and, you know, head to the trenches somewhere. Amazing. Yeah. And what was your sort of day-to-day job there? We were just driving buses in and out um, and the logistics of, you know, checking passports and all that sort of thing, um, getting them with the paperwork ready to send them on to the UK, um, but it was really just about getting people out of the danger and into a safe, well, safer country right on the border there with Poland. Unbelievable. Yeah, that's awesome. No, really cool work you guys are doing over there. What was um, a little bit funny, the first eight weeks that I was in um, Dubai, they kept me in a hotel, a real nice hotel, and there was a lot of Russian tourists there. Like, that's the number one tourists that go to, to Dubai. And, uh, you know, I remember having a couple of conversations with them and stuff by the pool and they'd always say, you know, oh, this is horrible that this has had to happen but we had no choice and it was just interesting sort of seeing their point of view. You know, Putin couldn't do anything any wrong and uh, they got a bit of a shock, I think about a week in, Visa and MasterCard and uh, American Express cut all their ties with anyone in Russia. Yeah, right. So all these guys, you know, sort of these upper middle class Russians that had a bit of money couldn't access any of their money in, in Dubai. <laughs> so all of a sudden they, would, they couldn't afford to go out for dinner, they couldn't afford to go to the clubs, they were just stuck by the pool pretty much doing nothing and trying to get a flight back into uh, Moscow. So it was kind of fitting, I thought. It's funny. Mm. Yeah, it's, I imagine pretty rare for you that someone was able to see both that side of it, like the Ukraine side on the border and then you're seeing the 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 top of the Russian, you know, um, not the oligarchs, obviously, no. but you know yeah. the uh, the people that are affected on the other side. Yeah. It's sort of it's a weird dynamic yeah, seeing say, both that. They say Putin's basically consolidated his base in Russia because he's built a middle class. You know, similar to what they've done in China, they've now built a middle class that didn't exist. There was always just the polar opposites, but it's his middle class that's keeping Putin you know, in charge. It's not the oligarchs. It's the ones that, are, you know, got decent jobs and make similar wages to, say, you know, public servants and stuff here. So they've got a disposable income and they're the ones that have kind of solidified his base. So they're very, um, you know, they've come out of being poor to now having a bit of money and they really do thank Putin for that. So it's going to be a hard break before 
the whole country really turns against him because he has produced a decent-sized middle class over there. And did you make any any friends, any people you keep in touch over there uh, still at, at, to this day? Not in, not in Ukraine. Um, I did at one stage before I uh, came back to Australia um, – I went and spoke with the, uh, at the embassy down in Abu Dhabi and was going to volunteer for basically their have a foreign legion type of thing. So I was going to volunteer for that um, and had basically agreed to it that I was going to head over in February, um, just gone. But uh, once my old man got sick and stuff, I just uh, scrapped that and just came back to Australia. So I was sort of, you know, started to appreciate so much that was going on there that I wanted to still be a part of it more. Mm. So I was planning on being a, a medic um, and, you know, security and stuff over there, but um, it never eventuated. Yeah, amazing. Yeah. I, I can imagine once you see that sort of stuff, you you feel like you have to go back and help yeah. in a way. Yeah, yeah you, you do. It sort of touches you. You can't, um, you know, anyone that sort of went there would have been, you know, felt for these people that were yep. basically for no real reason, um, you know, turfed out of their homes and families split apart and, um, yeah, it's not a, not a good look. Mm. You think you'll eventually go back over there? Uh, not while the war's going on. Yeah. No, I would love to go back at some stage and just, um, you know, see the place during peacetime, but no, no, no war's going on at the moment. Yeah. Awesome. Oh, well, thank you for sharing your stories and, um, guys, what's, what's next? We, we obviously can't wait for this the new new venue, um, but in the near when do we do we know when roughly that'll be towards launching? the end of the year towards the end yeah, of the year towards the end of the year fingers crossed yeah um, I mean everything's full full guns blazing in there at the moment so uh, pending delays and and everything towards the end of the year. Unreal. Yeah. Well, looking forward to that. Yeah, it's exciting. And uh, all the best with it. Yeah, thank it's you. A, it's a big job on that. It's a massive getting, job. Uh, getting that up and running. <laughs> yeah. And m- new music, albums, anything? We can, oh, uh, I'll, just, I'll just keep playing around with yeah. it a bit. Um, yeah, no no plans to do anything special. I'll just keep chugging away and hopefully one day I'll find one that someone makes a TikTok dance to and has <laughs> 800 million views. Yeah. I'll retire and just hang out at Corella all day. Sounds good. Sounds good. As opposed to what? As opposed to doing that. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you're living the dream already by yeah. the sound of it. Yeah. But yeah, what a, what better place could you choose? But uh, yeah, lads, thank you so much for uh, popping into the flats and talking to us. It's been a uh, awesome chat and uh, all the best with uh, what's next. Thanks very much for having us. Thanks, Thanks guys. Right.